I did a whole episode on the collapse of the USSR and one on the US and Russian relations and a whole other one on NATO. Be sure to go check those out. This episode, though, is about the Russian sphere of influence between the period 1991 and early 2022. As I narrate this in March 2022, Russia has invaded neighboring Ukraine and is active in several former Soviet states. Why? What is the reason for this? What is Russia's sphere of influence? Well, before we dive into that, let's examine what a sphere of influence even is. Many powerful states over the centuries have had subordinate tributary states whose native dynasty or leadership acknowledged the dominance or overlordship of that bigger power. This can be in the shape of becoming neutral, becoming loyal, or being a buffer state. A buffer state is a country lying between two rival or potentially hostile powers, more often than not between powerful countries. A buffer state's existence, the very existence, can sometimes help to prevent conflict between those larger hostile powers, making these otherwise unimportant players bigger on the world stage. It gives them some celebrity. Oftentimes, a buffer state is either minimally militarized or completely demilitarized. A few good examples include countries like Nepal, which is between India and China, Finland, between the Western alliances and Russia, or also previously the USSR, and North Korea, which lies between the US, i.e. South Korea, and China. Some of this buffer state business also lives in the eye of the beholder. North Korea, for example, is a threat to the US because it, the US, is the primary occupying force in the land that is South Korea. So, for the US, North Korea is a threat, not a buffer state. Lurking beyond North Korea is China, meaning for China, North Korea is the buffer state. Why? Because it creates a land buffer between its border and that of the US which is in South Korea or technically occupying South Korea. If the U.S. by proxy or otherwise gets North Korea, then the U.S. buffer entity of unified Korea by default borders China, thus creating a buffer between it and the U.S. subsidiary state of Japan. But it removes the buffer that we currently have in the form of North Korea that exists between China and the US, which is in South Korea. Also, keep in mind that for the US, at least now as in March 2022, both South Korea and Japan are it themselves important buffer states that are there to contain the Russian and Chinese forces or entities in the East, i.e. to stop 
Russia and China and lock them into their geographical spaces. Or at least that is the US perspective and that is what they hope would happen. Remember, by default, these US Asian possessions are not buffer states for China or Russia, but components of US attempts to contain them. In other words, those two countries could have been buffer states for China and Russia, but in the end, they're not. In fact, they host the American menace close to the Russian and Chinese homelands. So buffer states live and die in these very nebulous areas. The balance of power is something else. It is a concept in international relations that suggests states may secure their survival by preventing any one other state from gaining enough military power to dominate all those other states. If one state becomes strong or way stronger, the theory predicts that it will take advantage of its weaker neighbors, thus driving them to unite in a definitive coalition against that new strong power. Some realists, however, contend that a balance of power system is more stable than one with a dominant state, as aggression is unprofitable when there is equilibrium of power between rival coalitions. Good examples can be found in the 1800s so-called Concert of Europe, which I've spoken about in a prior episode too. The Concert of Europe kept some semblance of European peace between 1815 and 1914. A strong USSR checked the ambitions of the USA, and the USA checked the power of the USSR during the Cold War era. With the unipolar world starting in the early 1990s, leaving the US as the only major dominant world power, we saw a combination of wars in the Middle East, Africa, as well as the expansion of NATO. So there is some hidden truth to the idea of balance of power and keeping each other in check. The Monroe Doctrine was a United States foreign policy position that essentially opposed European colonialism in the Western Hemisphere, i.e. the Americas but allowed it, the U.S. itself, to do whatever it, the U.S., wanted in that hemisphere. Although the original plan, though, was to discourage European imperialism, it effectively later meant anyone else in the world should also steer clear of that region, as the U.S. saw it as its playground and backyard. In fact, the U.S. saw the entire Americas south of its own border as its sphere of influence. The U.S. wanted to be able to intervene in those countries at will, without having to answer those tough questions. In 1962, for example, when it was discovered that the Soviets were putting missiles in Cuba, the U.S. had a crisis on its hands. More recently, as the Russians and Chinese have made massive investments in Central and South American countries, it has upended the Monroe Doctrine completely. China and Russia now intermingle with countries like Brazil and Panama openly. Indeed, over time, Mexico, Argentina, and others have developed agency of their own minus U.S. involvement. When the British Empire was falling apart in the mid-1900s, the declining empire created a proxy 
with a hope and a prayer to keep influence. It created what became known as the British Commonwealth that included countries as far and wide as Canada, Bermuda, and India. Over time, as British power declined, the influence of the Commonwealth eroded. Unlike the U.S. attempt over Latin America, the British sphere of influence proved geographically challenging and had some nasty historical undertones. The Americans, on the other hand, had yet to build the nasty historical undertones with Latin America. The French, too, as their empire declined, also attempted, with varying degree, to keep a sphere of influence over their former colonies. That, too, like the British, has seen its stature decline. I've already mentioned China sees North Korea as a buffer state to American-occupied South Korea and American-occupied Japan. Given the unbelievably close proximity of this presence, the Chinese government has made the remarkable decision to create a buffer in the South China Sea itself by creating islands and putting military hardware on it, forcing, therefore, the Americans to refocus their attention to the sea, thus giving much-needed breathing room at the Chinese coastline. And that brings me to Russia. The Russia of today was not the Russia of the USSR or of the Russian Tsarist Empire, or even before. If you go back far enough, you end up with varying borders and end up in a nebulous swathe of land called Kiev Rus. The origins of the Rus were thus firmly in Eastern Europe. The modern Russian Federation, though massive, still has most of its population in its west, in the European side of the country, with much of the rest more sparsely populated. This massive country has its own independent foreign policy and is not beholden to outside powers. It has, however, lost a lot of influence since the USSR collapsed. First, it played second fiddle to the richer Western countries, and after 2003's Iraq invasion, it played second fiddle to China. A large land-based power like Russia, China, the US, and now India require buffer states, and they require control over their spheres of influence. The Soviet demise led to Russia as a state in near collapse. The 1990s proved to be a horrendous decade. However, the elites pulled their socks up in the early 2000s, leading to a revival of authority and power. However, as their backbone was getting stronger, the revived Russia could only watch as its former partners and client states signed up with their enemies in North America and Western Europe in a military alliance designed for one thing and one thing alone, the destruction of the state of Russia itself. The Commonwealth of Independent States, or CIS, is a regional intergovernmental organization in Eastern Europe and in Asia. It was formed following the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. The CIS encourages cooperation in economic, political, and military affairs and has certain powers relating to the coordination of things like trade, finance, lawmaking, and security. It has also promoted other things like cooperation on cross-border crime prevention and other stuff too. The CIS has its origins with the Russian Empire 
which was replaced in 1917 by the Russian Republic. That itself was replaced ultimately by the Soviet Union. When the USSR finally fell in December 1991, on the 8th of December 1991, an accord was signed that declared the USSR would no longer exist and proclaimed the CIS in its place. A few days later, the Alma-Alta Protocol was signed, which declared that the Soviet Union was finally dissolved. If you want to learn more, look back at my episode on the fall of the Soviet Union. Anyhow, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, which regarded their membership in the Soviet Union as illegal, as an illegal occupation, chose not to participate in the CIS at all. Georgia withdrew its membership in 2008 following the Russia-Georgian War. Ukraine ended its participation of the CIS in 2018 due to prolonged trend tensions with the Russians. Eight of the nine CIS member states participate in the CIS free trade area. Three organizations originated from the CIS, namely the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Eurasian Economic Union, and the Union State. While the first and second are military and economic alliances, the third aims to reach a supranational union of Russia and Belarus with a common government flag, currency, and so on. Like the British Commonwealth, like the Monroe Doctrine, this was an attempt to keep the union alive without it being part of a singular entity. These states provided Russia with a much-needed buffer and given the sheer number of ethnic Russians in some of these countries, it created a union or alliance to wield some influence. In other words, buffer states and spheres of influence. After the USSR collapsed in 1991, the Baltics immediately went their separate ways. These three countries on the Baltic Sea moved away from Russia and eventually joined both the EU and NATO, meaning it was in the anti-Russia camp. It also meant that its economies were now linked to the EU while its military to the US. This, in countries, a stone's throw from St. Petersburg. Of the remaining countries, the United States has tried to overthrow the governments of Belarus in 2020 and Kazakhstan in 2021, and it has unfortunately failed in those queries, but that is fortunate for Russia. You see, Russia has retained overall primacy in these areas. Chechnya was a problem for the Russians, but was eventually, shall we say, pacified. Another civil war, or war, depending on how you look at it, was Armenia. A full-on conflict in the late 1980s, again erupting in 2020, known as the Nagano-Karabakh conflict, was and is a bloody ethnic conflict that is held together by Russian peacekeepers thus keeping the Latin Christians, a.k.a. Americans, out of the region. That leaves us with two now former members of the CIS, Georgia and Ukraine. Starting with Georgia, and then we'll look at Ukraine. The overt Western orientation of Georgia, deepening political ties with the US and European Union, notably through its EU and NATO membership aspirations, the U.S. Trade and Equip Military Assistance Program and the construction of the Baku-Tbilisi-Chayan pipeline have frequently strained Tbilisi's relationship with the Kremlin. 
The Georgia Train and Equip Program, or GTEP, was an American-sponsored 18-month, $64 billion U.S. dollar program aimed at increasing the capabilities of the Georgian Armed Forces by training and equipping four 600-man battalions with light weapons, vehicles, and communications. The program enabled the U.S. to expedite funding for the Georgian military. On the 27th of February, 2002, the U.S. media reported that U.S. would send approximately 200 U.S. Army Special Forces soldiers to Georgia in order to train Georgian troops. The program began in May 2002 when American Special Forces soldiers of the 10th Special Forces Group began training select units of the Georgian Armed Forces. Although GTEP formally ended in April 2004, U.S. military assistance to Georgia continued through the Georgia Sustainment and Stability Operations Program. This Georgia Sustainment and Stability Operations Program was a security assistance program designed to create and increase capability in the Georgian military. Sponsored, of course, by the West. The first phase of the program lasted about 18 months and cost about $60 million. It ended in October 2006 to be succeeded by a phase two that lasted until June of 2007. The Americans then tried their luck via Mikhail Slavicki to be their de facto puppet leader in Georgia, leading us to 2008. In 2008, the U.S. strongly supported Georgia's admission into NATO. In 2011, the North Atlantic Council designated Georgia as an aspirant country. In case you are wondering, yes, Georgia is in Europe, but only just in Europe. On maps, it seems closer to Central Asia than Europe, but yeah, it's Europe. And yes, Georgia is in Russia's sphere of influence. A NATO outpost so far from mainstream Europe would be dangerous for Russia and would allow the Americans to enter very overtly under the NATO banner into a sacred former Soviet territory. Tensions between Georgia and Russia began escalating from about April of 2008. A bomb explosion on the 1st of August 2008 targeted a car transporting Georgian peacekeepers. South Ortisians were responsible for instigating this incident, which marked the opening of hostilities and injured five Georgian servicemen. In reply, several South Ortisians militiamen were killed by snipers. According to Georgian intelligence, and indeed several Russian media reports, part of the regular non-peacekeeping Russian army had already moved to South Otessa and through the rocky tunnel before the Georgian military action even took place. Leading us to the current situation in Georgia, i.e. its borders are disputed and the land remains festering, a tribute to U.S. ambitions and Russian reactions, meaning two things. One, EU membership becomes impossible, and NATO membership becomes impossible too, because the borders are disputed. The EU and NATO won't intervene there. I'm not going to start and get into the details of NATO. I did a whole episode on NATO, and you should really go back and find it. To some, though, NATO started as a military group of North American and Western European countries, expanded a lot since then, and expanded even more since the Cold War ended, including into former Warsaw Pact and Soviet states. Internally, NATO is sold 
as a defensive alliance. But the reality is it's been an offensive alliance since the 1990s, including in Kosovo and then in Afghanistan for 20 years. Most crucially, it is a pact designed to contain Russia and ultimately to perform regime change inside Russia by hook, by crook, or by nuke. The end game is the destruction of the Russian state. Even if NATO diplomats don't think it, I can tell you, I do think it. And the evidence is that the target, the Russian Federation, also believes it, which makes it even more profound. And that's ultimately all that matters. Indeed, the rampant Russia-phobia inside NATO member states only increased after the former Warsaw Pact and ex-Soviet states started joining NATO, thus amplifying the mistrust of the former communist Slavic Orthodox, now Russian nationalist state. That's the context you look at Georgia and the context that you look at Ukraine. Like Georgia, Ukraine was offered NATO membership in 2008. Like Georgia, this was a red line for Russia. In multiple forums, the Russians warned NATO that any NATO expansion into Ukraine, like Georgia, would be met by violent reaction. The so-called Orange Revolution was a series of protests and political events that took place in the Ukraine from late November 2004 to about January or Feb 2005. All of this happening in the immediate aftermath of the runoff vote of the 2004 Ukrainian presidential election, which was claimed to be marred by massive corruption, voter intimidation, electoral fraud, etc., and I have no doubt that that was actually the case. In Kiev, the Ukrainian capital was the focal point of the movement's campaign of civil resistance, with thousands of protesters demonstrating daily. Nationwide, the revolution was highlighted by a series of acts of civil disobedience, sit-ins, and general strikes organized by the opposition movement because they felt they had won. These protests were prompted by reports from several domestic and even Western, Western, foreign election monitors that there was widespread fraud. And that ultimately was in favor of the Russian candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, against Viktor Yushchenko, who was the Western favorite candidate. Anyhow, the protests ultimately succeeded when the result of the original runoff were annulled and a revote was ordered by Ukraine's Supreme Court for December 2004 and under intense scrutiny by domestic and international, i.e. Western observers, the second runoff was declared to be free and fair. Final results showed a clear victory for Yushchenko, the Western candidate who received about 52% of the vote, compared to Yanukovych's 45%. Yushchenko was ultimately declared the official winner with his inauguration in January of 2005. The Orange Revolution ended. Remember the dates here, 2004. This is still four full years before the U.S. wanting NATO to enlarge into Georgia and Ukraine. We are still four years away from that. This Orange Revolution was a carefully structured color revolution. Structured, not manufactured. Because that would ultimately diminish a lot of real grievances people actually had against the regime. So it was not manufactured, but also heavily influenced by foreign meddling. In the 2020 presidential election, Yanukovych 
became Yushchenko's successor as president of Ukraine after the Central Election Commission and international observers declared that the presidential election was conducted fairly. So was that election free and fair? Who knows? But it's likely that Russia meddled in the 2010 election and got their candidate back into office. The so-termed Medan revolution took place in Ukraine in February 2014, at the end of the Euromedan protests when deadly clashes between protesters and security forces in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, culminated into the ousting of the elected Viktor Yanukovych, i.e. the Russian candidate, and the overthrow of that Ukrainian regime. Those Euromedan protests were sparked by the Ukraine government's sudden decision not to sign the European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement, instead choosing closer ties to Russia and the Eurasian Economic Union. Ukraine's parliament had overwhelmingly approved the concluding of the agreement with the EU, while Russia had put pressure on Ukraine to reject it. The scope of the protests widened, with calls for the resignation of President Viktor Yanukovych. There were a lot of protests, including occupation of government buildings and the death of police officers and protesters. All of this kind of climax in the middle of February. As a result, an agreement was signed on the 21st of Feb by Yanukovych and leaders of the parliamentary opposition that called for the creation of an intramunitary government, constitutional reforms and early elections. Shortly after the agreement, Yanukovych and other government ministers actually fled the country. Parliament then removed Yanukovych from office and installed an interim government. This so-called revolution of dignity was soon followed by the Crimean invasion of Russia and the pro-Russian unrest in eastern Ukraine, all in the year 2014. Between 2014 and 2022, Ukraine became a hotbed for great power rivalry. The US and its satellite states offered what Russia could not, jobs and wealth. The idea that Ukraine could be a Poland or Latvia was tempting. In return, Ukraine could join the EU and NATO and allow its soil to be the launching pad to the end of the Russian menace once and for all. To do this, the US and its NATO and EU partners would train the Ukrainians, engage its right wing and pour money into its economy. The U.S. even worked hand-in-glove with far-right, literal neo-Nazi organizations in Ukraine. If Russia could take Crimea and the Donbass, we, the West, we can take the rest. Give it Article 5 and end the Russian state. It was the great game, but Ukraine was the playground. After much failure, the Ukrainian government and the Russian government could not agree to a settlement. The settlement being that the Ukraine accepts the annexation of Crimea and the loss of the Donbass. Plus, and this is the big one, commits to becoming a buffer state just like Finland, who has successfully, by the way, kept a steady balance between Russia, the USSR, and NATO. Late in 2021, after further overt US support for Ukraine's military and Ukraine's own development of long-range missile technology, Russia's President Vladimir Putin had to make a hard decision, though one a decade in the making. He had to decide between doing something now or never. If you do nothing now and allow Ukraine to militarize, then Russia is looking at the end game. If you act now and invade while Ukraine is still weak, 
you risk blood destruction and Western pressure, but you take action. However, the calculus is that you are damned if you do and damned if you don't. Western sanctions, no matter how hard, only matters if you have a country for sanctions to even happen. In Putin's assessment, if you do nothing, Russia is doomed. If you do something, you have a better chance of survival. Putin had to make the hard decision to invade and ultimately, as is all war, kill his own. And his own means Ukrainians because Russians and Ukrainians see each other as the same peoples, especially the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. On the 24th of Feb, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. So why does the U.S. want Ukraine? Well, it's the same reason the U.S. went into Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. occupied Iraq and Afghanistan to fight the Muslims over there and not over here. Here is the U.S. and there is somewhere else. Ukraine and Georgia are collateral damage, so the Russians are kept busy along their own borders and not in the U.S. itself. A mindset that developed over many years because most Western countries have done some nasty things to other people and would not like it repeated on them. Why would they? They are prosperous now. For the West, Ukraine was a prize. If the US could get Ukraine, it opens for NATO those planes that lead to Moscow and St. Petersburg from the Carpathian Mountains, making the Russians vulnerable for the first time in 100 years. With the Ukraine in NATO and with Ukraine under Article 5 of NATO, the article where an attack on one is an attack on all, would effectively make Russia's nuclear capabilities to attack useless because the US would place strategic weapons, biological and nuclear, in Ukraine, close to the border, just like they had done in other Eastern European NATO countries already. With a Ukraine inside NATO, it could be the launching pad for that endgame, that being the ultimate destabilization and destruction of the Russian state. If nothing else, a dismemberment into multiple parts, so it's either left in a rump or not at all. Like I highlighted in the episode on NATO, I'm not sure what you do after this endgame is over. If you are NATO, if they, NATO, make a mess in Afghanistan like they did over 2001 to 2021, how on earth would they work on the destroyed ashes of the land formerly known as Russia. Not to mention all the nukes, the military, and everything else that goes with a large modern state in disarray. A huge ethnic cleansing effort of the Russian population would have to happen, or you would need to recreate the 1917 to 1922 Russians at war and let them butcher one another off. Russia has all of these spheres of influence, but if there is no Russia, then there is no issue. That's how geopolitics works. I did a whole podcast on great powers. Go check it out. One of the things I said is that one very important thing that distinguishes a great power from rest is something unique. In my view, great powers are not just big. They have tons of weapons and stuff, but they also use it to do something really specific. They openly kill and slaughter babies. Yes, not just any baby, but someone else's baby. 
and often really cute babies. The U.S. is a master act at this, aimlessly butchering babies in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. The Russians, too, in Ukraine, Syria, and so on. Russia is a great power. China, on the other hand, is not. It kills its own babies, and that, too, is debatable. But it does not do what the U.S. and Russia does. I know it's a crude description of what a great power is, but that is the truth. You really have to go far and go and kill somebody else's babies. That's the rotten truth about what it means to be this great power, this power. And this is what you do need to be a great power. You need to be ruthless. And Russia is a great power. And so is the U.S. because they're ruthless. They're ruthless at each other and they're ruthless against others. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to get used to be doing if you want to be a great power. And that is not easy. But somebody has to do it. I want to leave you with one thought. Spirits of influence and buffer states have a place. They do make sense. It's incumbent on the bigger power to respect some rules. But it is up to, sadly, the smaller power, the buffer state, to ultimately pay respect and tribute to its bigger neighbor. Consider Cuba. Consider Bangladesh. Consider North Korea. All of these are spheres of influence. Spheres of influence and buffer states are, they're like regular countries. They're mental models in our heads. All countries are mental models in our heads. They exist only in our heads. In geopolitics, though, real politics, is the name of the game, and it's ruthless. There is no one stopping you to do anything because there is no such thing as the rule or law or any kind of rules-based system. It's whatever you want, and you're right. Might is right. It always works. It always has. Ask the Russians, ask the Americans, ask anyone in somebody else's sphere of influence. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Until next time, thank you very much. 